of the many men who I am, who we are, I can't find a single one. They disappear among my clothes. They've left for another city. When everything seems to be set to show me off as intelligent, the fool I always keep hidden takes over all that I say. At other times, I'm asleep among distinguished people. And when I look for my brave self, a coward unknown to me rushes to cover my skeleton with a thousand fine excuses. When a decent house catches fire, instead of the fireman, I summon an arsonist bursts onto the scene, and that's me. What can I do? What can I do to distinguish myself? How can I pull myself together? All the books I read are full of dazzling heroes, always sure of themselves. I die with envy of them. And in films full of wind and bullets, I goggle at the cowboys. I even admire their horses. But when I call for a hero, out comes my lazy old self. So I never know who I am, nor how many I am or will be. I'd love to be able to touch a bell and summon the real me. Because if I really need myself, I mustn't disappear. While I am writing, I'm far away, and when I come back, I've gone. I would like to know if others go through the same thing I do, have as many selves as I have, and see themselves similarly. And when I've exhausted this problem, I'm going to study so hard that when I explain myself, I'll be talking geography. That's the poem, We Are Many, by Pablo Neruda. And I love that poem because it describes the predicament of manhood. It describes my predicament, even if it doesn't necessarily describe yours. We are many. <laughs> How many of you out there have tried to summon a firefighter and instead you get an arsonist? Jesus H. Christ. I tell you what, it is, it is bad. Sometimes I, 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 I just... <sighs> to all the people who have had to put up with me across the years, and to all the people who I might have wronged, intentionally or unintentionally, just by being me, I, I would like to apologize. Sometimes it is just so damned automatic, and we are uh, just burning off our own karma, aren't we? Just our conditioning, our enculturation, our circumstances, our choices, other people's choices, our genetic coding. God, it is a karma runoff around here, isn't it? It's not personal. Sometimes I think that, that we are so convinced that people are personally aligning against us. I don't think any of it is personal. I think it's all just burning off our stuff. And we happen to be the lucky recipients of each other. <laughs> oh, man. It is good. I uh, was talking with a friend yesterday. He will remain anonymous. He will remain anonymous. And he, he texts me and he says, 
hey, you, are you catching the Trump rally? Which was funny because I got to be honest, uh, this guy, he's, he's, a, he's a good guy. He's, uh, he's for much of his life been a progressive, master's degree, very interesting fellow, um, has, <laughs> has all girls in his family. Um, truly, just a, a real renaissance man. In some ways, probably for much of his life, he might have even identified as a, as a feminist man, for those of you who might know what that is. And so when he asks me if I'm catching the Trump rally, I'm a little surprised. I say, no, can't say I am. Why is it interesting? And he responds, oh man, yes. And then I, I respond safely. I say, that guy, meaning Trump, he's so funny. He's hilarious. You know, this is a this is a conversational neutral ground, right? If you say something's funny, if you say something's interesting, if you even say something's hilarious, you haven't quite exactly said how you feel about the thing. It could be hilarious in the sense that it is genuinely funny and worthy of interest and note. Uh, it is something that people should pay attention to and that you have enjoyed. Or it could be, this is laughable, this is ridiculous, and I disdain this. Truly, it's a litmus test. It's a Rorschach. Uh, You're just, you're putting something out there. We'll see how it works. So, I did this, and as as I did, he responds, um, oh yeah, he's so funny. Dot, dot, dot. I gotta tell you, I secretly like Trump. (laughs) I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought this was so funny that he was admitting this. He says, he says it just like it is. He, he tells people exactly what's on his mind. He's not pulling punches. I gotta hand it to him. I, I agree. There is something, I don't know what it is. I don't have any words for it, but there is something certainly enjoyable, like kind of watching the heckler in eighth grade smart off to the teacher. And you're like, thank God he is saying what we've all been thinking for so long. And there's something like watching a train wreck as it happens. You feel like you're a reporter writing their article for the upcoming release. So I get it. There's something really... um, delicious about watching these things. Then my friend says this, I'm secretly a fan of Trump. He he just said that. And then he says, like I'm secretly a man. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone lest I be written off, lest I be uh, dismembered, lest I be destroyed, called out, crushed beneath the heels of those who are rising up. Oh my gosh, I howled in laughter. That part right there is priceless. Like I'm secretly a man. Shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> if I tell someone, things could really get out of hand. It, that is, it is about where it's come to. That cracks me up. Manhood has always been a choice. I, I posted on this uh, on social media um, earlier uh, in the week. It, it always has been a choice. This is not new. 
This is not new news. Manhood has always been a cleaving away, a carving out, a walking away from the world of the feminine. Most of our earliest and most ancient myths are, are depicting this. They're depicting the active and aggressive and assertive uh, parsing out of the hero from the world of the feminine. And I think that that is a mythologizing of what was actually often happening at the tribal level. The child being raised by their mother and by a village of women. And at the time, the drums would come, the drums pounding, pounding, pounding. And the women would become terrified at night. And the men would suddenly alight upon the village, taking away the male children who were now of age. Ripping them out of their hands and taking them to be initiated into the world of men. And when these boys returned, they were no longer boys, they were men. This was a painful process. If you, if you haven't read my write-up on initiations, you should go to evolvingwild.live and read what I talk about when I talk about initiation. This is a painful process full of loss, full of profound and deep emotions, there is a severing, a tearing away, a little death that occurs. And without it, the boy is not perceived to be a man at all. He may be male, but he is not a man. I think that this is interesting because today that takes the form mostly, mostly in the midlife crises that seems to happen. Men have to lose their reputation. They have to have a, a cataclysmic event where their resume is destroyed. They usually burn through some relationships. And the reason is why, because it's only then that they are able to identify the shadow that has been lurking in their basement. <laughs> As I said to one person, I had a shadow that was running amok in my basement, lighting fires. And the smoke was getting into all the rooms up top, scaring people away. And beyond all that, it was actually destroying the pillars of the house. Ridiculous. But it took me forever. Because I had, I had taken off the smoke detectors. I had, I had locked myself out of that kind of detection sequence. I had blinded myself to it. Unfortunately, it took powerful forms of feedback just to get to the place where I could acknowledge there was something going on. Men, this is why initiation comes at a terrible cost. It is so costly because it takes so much to see yourself as you are. Have you been initiated? Have you chosen to be a man? Have you chosen to see yourself? You know, you can go through a lot of loss. You can go through a lot of tragedy. You can go through a lot of feedback and still never make the choice. Have you made the choice? Are you responding to your own sense of manhood? Or are you simply calling on other characters, other figures? Do you summon the heroic and instead you get the coward? As Neruda says... Just questions, questions I've got today. Ah, what kind of what kind of person will we choose to be? I know who I've chosen to be in the past a lot. 
sometimes it just feels automatic. Sometimes it just feels like I'm a second-hand human, a Xerox copy of a man. But as I can, and as I identify them, as I see my blind spots, as I can tell this is what's going on, I'm trying to show up. I'm trying to take responsibility. I'm trying to assert myself, become more active, and take the things that I need and want for myself to protect my tribe. Sometimes the enemy is most powerfully me. Sometimes I have to protect them from me. Sometimes there are other people and I have to turn my back on other people. Burn bridges, burn bridges. Sometimes I repeat that as a mantra in my head. Sometimes you have to burn bridges to move forward. Do what it takes, men. Ooh. All right. Hey, today is a fun podcast. This was a great podcast for me to do. I get to host Josh. Josh is as close to a pro bro as I have had on here. Hey, 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 guys. Don't mean to insult you. We're all men. We're all men somewhere falling between the pro bros and the yoga mats. But Josh is about as close as it comes to a pro bro. He checks all the boxes, and I say this early on in the podcast. A lot of my archetypal images that I have in my head, besides that he does not, after all, make his living charging other men to demonstrate his manhood. Um, that probably is the only characteristic he might be missing. <laughs> I love him. It's so great. You know, you guys have heard me talk about the pro bros and the yoga mats. Listen, here's the deal. There's nothing wrong with these categories. These are categories of men. They exist and they are important. I, I actually, gosh, believe it or not, I subscribe to several podcasts on both sides of it. On both sides of it. I literally was listening to a yoga mat today. A bonobo. It was so good. It was so rewarding. I felt so soft and so cuddly. I, I wanted to curl up and do a big blanket pillow, wear my onesie, and practice self-care. <laughs> but I did. It's so true. Sometimes I listen to yoga mats and I'm like, where is my mall? Where is my giant axe? How can I learn how to forge my own blade? How can I... How can I learn how to add 100 pounds of pure muscle to my very soul? <laughs> These are the extremes. These are the extremes. Anyway, Josh is not extreme. Josh is a super cool guy. I had so much fun uh, just getting to know him. You know, it's so cool to be able to take the opportunity just to get to know a man. And he told me so much about himself. I learned so much. Now, here's what's interesting. And I, we talked about this. There came a moment when I shut off the mic. And the next hour after I shut off the mic, Josh got in to some really real shit. And that is so profoundly interesting to me. I won't go into what he talked about. Actually, we, we said towards the end, hey, <laughs> this needs to be another podcast. But I think it taught me something. It taught me that the, the, the conversations at least part of the conversation that we need to be having is the part that it, that lies just under the surface. 
we talk about a lot of things in this podcast. We talk about uh, his career in the military. We talk about his 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 career currently, which is he's a he's a railroad engineer. Uh, we talk about a lot of the different activities uh, that he participates in, about his relationship with his father, his brother, and his children. Uh, we talk about current politics. We talk about current understandings of the world today. We go through a lot. We use our time well, but. I am interested and becoming increasingly interested in talking about the crossroads of crisis in men's lives, how men are showing up as either turnaround artists, how men have fallen, how men have failed, how men have picked themselves up. We, we get into that a little, and I want more of it. It is creating a taste for more in me. I think, I think maybe we need to hear more of these stories. Because our lives as men are filled with these ups and down cycles. Unless you have lived the most steady existence, a a long discipline in one direction, which is rare. Most of us have experienced loops, loop-de-loops in our life. And uh, it is only uh, with extreme pain right? Great love, great suffering that we are able to be transformed. I want to hear more of those stories, guys. Hey, some of you have reached out to me. Some of you have contacted me and said, I I have one of those stories. I want to talk to you about it. Here's the thing. If that's you and you think that you would like to to be on Lost Man Standing, um, I want to talk to you. I want to at least explore that issue. I'm looking for the hard angles. I'm looking for the jagged edges in men. Um, these are not surface level conversations. This is manthropology, um, to the max. Okay. So if you're that guy, if you're the guy who, who has some jagged edges, some hard angles, and you want to talk about your own experience, potentially as a turnaround artist, either in the past or in process, I want to talk to you. Okay. You can reach me, uh, through our website, evolvingwild.live. You can reach me through social media. Get in contact with me, okay? All right. If you haven't done so, and I hate to plug myself, love to plug myself, uh, go over to iTunes. Migrate to iTunes. Enter the five-star review. Enter that that review as fantastic. Best I've ever had. Um, it means so much. It really does. It helps improve our ability to be searched out, to be found by others who are checking in and discovering their own sense of the masculine, trying to find balance between the pro bro and the bonobo, the yoga mat. Um, if that is uh, something that you have the option of doing, please do so. We really appreciate it. Ah, oh, you're great guys. Hey, this is Lost Man Standing, uh, where we explore spirituality, ecology, and sex through the lens of the sacred masculine. And, hey, if you haven't figured it out by now, I am your host, Rainier Wild. So excited you're here. Without further ado, here is Lost Man Standing. Maybe you could tell me what you think is going on. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. This life's hard, man, but it's harder if you're stupid. I've been around, you know. There was a time I could see, and I have seen 
But there is nothing like the sight of an amputated spirit. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Today, woo, I've got to stop and profile like never before. To be the man, you got to beat the man. And I'm saying, woo, right here. Oh, Isn't that good? Yeah. yeah. I, I, st- I still don't, I don't get tired of it. No, you can't. I know. All you do is get visions of every single one of them talking. <laughs> totally. How many flash into your head? Oh, it, for me, it's that Al Pacino quote that there's nothing like the sight of a, of a dead or a wounded man's spirit, a broken man's spirit, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Okay, so I'm sitting here in the forest with, uh, with Josh. Uh, Josh falls somewhere in the spectrum. I, I, like, to, I like to draw the spectrum of pro okay. bros to yoga mats. Okay. So like manly men all the way down to, to you know, the very soft, very civilized <laughs> man. I'm going to put Josh closest to the pro bro spectrum of anyone I've had on up to this point. And okay. here's why. First of all, I'm sitting staring at a beard almost as beautiful as mine, if oh, I can well, say so. Man, if we could judge beards, then we'd be in a whole other class. <laughs> but, but, but your beard comes with, I feel, uh, I feel more of a sense of accomplishment on it because you, you drive an awesome truck. You have a, a, a vehicle that you work on. Mm-hmm. Outside. You, you, at least as of last summer, owned a boat. Still do. Still own a boat. Oh, yeah. The HOA won't let you park it outside anymore. Damn HOAs. God damn. <laughs> it's like the state except Can't for a neighborhood. No. No. Nope. You, um, do you hunt? No. Okay. That's, I have hunted. You have. But I don't currently hunt. Okay. Would you like to hunt in the yes, future? Absolutely. Okay. That's so, a whole other. So you, I mean, I feel, do you work out? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. So I feel like <laughs> my short micro questionnaire, you check the boxes for pro bro. In oh, many ways. I like it. Yeah. And you have a manly job. Okay. What, what, what is your job? How, how would you describe your job? I'm an engineer for the railroads. So. You're an engineer. I, yeah. And I have to, sometimes you have to classify that because when you talk to some other people who don't know what they're talking about, they go, okay, like, uh, what do you got your engineering degree in? It's, oh, yeah. it's really, uh, no, I just run the train. Is that so. like a bathroom technician, you know, like the, yeah, the new janitor yeah. name? Yeah, you got that extended name, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, we, uh, we but run But you the run trains. trains. Yeah, we do the long haul for freight. So. Wow. How long have you been doing that? Uh, this is my 13th year. Wow, so that's a long a time. Yeah. I started year, I started pretty early. You started young? Mm-hmm. Huh. What did you do before that? Uh, let's, I had everything before that. So I went straight to college, got out of college, and then... Uh, had the in-between jobs. My dad's been an engineer for the railroad for uh, probably about 27 years. Oh, wow. Your so, dad actually was an engineer for uh-huh. the railroad, too. Following in footsteps. Wow. Yeah. Does he work for the same one? Yep, sure does. No way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So What's that like? So he is your co-worker. Uh, yeah, so we can't drive the train at the same time, so I can, don't get to work with him directly, but oh, damn. we have literally quite quite exactly the same job so really yeah wait and i only because (laughs) you have a brother also Mm -hmm. who's also an engineer for the railroad now okay so here's what this leads me to believe this leads me to believe that your dad did something right because you guys are both (laughs) or he did something really wrong no (laughs) no he uh he's done more right than he likes to assume he's done so he uh you know he built our entire family off the railroad you find a job you stick with it and then you kind of just uh 
make sure your family has everything. And like a one-job wonder kind of thing? Uh, or? Not a one-job wonder, just more of a uh, you find what works for your family to give them what they need, and you stick with it as best you can. And, wow. you know, that's what building a career is when you think about it. It's hmm. You find what works. and you How know. long has he been with the railroad? It's been about 27 years. Okay, so he's so, stuck with it for a long time. Yeah, he's been in quite a while. Huh. What, what was it like growing up as a kid with a dad in the railroad? Uh, it was hard. You know, there was a lot of nights he wasn't home. You never knew if he was going to be there or not be there. So uh, it was difficult. Well, what's the uncertainty about? Because I, I also, I don't know about your schedule either. I, well, I end up getting confused. Well, and that's the thing. You're confused because I have no schedule. There is no schedule. So, you know, I don't have holidays. I don't have birthdays. I, I don't know when I am or am not going to work. So you can never really rely on me as a... Uh, I'm going to be there kind of person unless I have at least three, two months to actually plan it out. That's what the gossip is yeah. behind you, behind you, right? He's unreliable. Exactly. That's... Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, how long have we been wanting to try and get together and have this night? So I know. You know, it's been one of those things. Uh, so... W- is this just because you're like on probation or something? Or <laughs> no, 13 years of probation. I hope not. Uh, this has been the whole time. Well, yeah, it's uh, I, until I'm probably about 20 to 25 years in, I won't be able to hold a standard job unless I lose. I can go to the yard, which is a you work the same shift, the same people, mm. uh, the same job, but you lose about 35 percent of your pay when you do that. So you said that with a level of like disgust on your face. Yeah, the yard. No, I mean it's your shift in. You're shifting all the cars and building the trains, but you're not transporting them from point A to point B. So huh. I, they should be paid equally in my eye, but that's... But they don't. They don't, no. So so are you like the equivalent of like the Top Gun flyboys? I mean, is that kind no. of what you are in the pecking order of things? No, I'm a guy that likes to just come to work and get get the shift in and get done with it and go home and forget about it. So it's so... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and I, I could be totally wrong. But my perception is that your job is about as, like, true American blue-collar as it gets. I mean, you work for the fucking railroads. Yeah. It's like, that's amazing. You know, a lot of guys slave. You got a lot of the carpenters' unions and the iron workers and everything else yeah. that throw in there. And we've got uh, our union together, too. So, you know, it's it's all there. It's They definitely don't play me for the work, though. It's always... They pay you for the lifestyle is what it is. But, so. Uh, so this lifestyle, uh, just the the inconsistency. Inconsistency, not being there for your family, so on and so forth, yeah. So that's fascinating, though, because, you know, when I see that look in your eye about your dad or, or you know, obviously he's got two sons now who are on the railroad, my instant conclusion is, wow, that that must have worked out well, but, but you're saying it's hard. It is, but, you know, it's uh, even though... He would go away for a long time at a, at a specific date, come back. He was always there. He always was a presence in my life. It wasn't like he just disappeared, mm. you know. And we've gone through times where, like, I've been deployed for six, seven, you know, mm. weeks, months. It doesn't matter, you know. But we didn't have to deal with that. So he was always at home. Mm-hmm. Just some other days he wasn't able to make it. So practices and games and things like that, you never knew. Sometimes I wonder if... Uh... If we're around too much. Too much. <laughs> yeah, like... Uh, As just, a father figure or... Well, yeah, we're in relationships. I mean, if you think about a hundred years ago, maybe even not that much longer ago, uh, you had men who, they were going away for a year, two years, three years at a time. Mm-hmm. God, will I ever see them again? But those letters, I mean, they're just so... 
nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, distance seems like it might make the heart grow fonder. Maybe we'd like each other more if we were around each other less. I mean, like, think about this. You used to go to Thanksgiving and have to encounter that creepy, weird uncle with those freaking political views. You're like, God, oh, he yeah. will not shut up. But at least I don't have to see him till next Thanksgiving. But now, it's like he's all over Facebook. And you're like, will you shut the fuck up? Oh, yeah. Like, block. Exactly. Yeah, everybody's got an instant international publication now. All you have to do is press send or post or whatever it is, whether it's any of the... We're around each other too much. Exactly. <laughs> you're, just, you're just too much. But, you know, you grow up behind the man that raised you, I think, and that was my father. Huh. And, you know, I hope if my kids choose that path that they can go that way too. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like, my dad's very, you know, I didn't, I didn't work this hard for you to just join the railroad and you know so on and so forth some of it's a little sarcasm some of it's not but you know it's uh he expected what he calls more but define more you know now he's got in my eyes a son that is really just kind of working to provide for his family and make everything work just the way he did you know and i saw that but as a kid you don't think that way you know as a kid your dad's just gone or he missed this game or he wasn't there for this and yes he had i had everything i needed but there's a lot of things you don't realize that until you grow older and you look back and you're like, he wasn't gone because he wanted to be gone. He was gone as a sacrifice to give us what we needed. Mm. And, you know, that was a long lesson to learn yeah. to try and figure all that stuff out. But, you know, it works out over time. So You really saw it as, uh, I mean, did you see it as a child as, or was it storied as a child that my dad is gone because he's providing for the family and... Yeah, for the most part, it was it was always kind of, you know, when I thought about I knew what my dad's job was mm-hmm. since I was probably nine or ten. So growing up with it wasn't a big deal. Mm. But uh, adjusting to it afterwards, you kind of look back and you're like, oh, man, I hope I wasn't that a-hole kid that was always just mad at him or, you when know, fuck's my dad? Yeah, complaining yeah. all the time that your dad isn't around kind of deal. But, right. you know, there was times where he's out of town and I'm in so much trouble that mom just throws me on the couch and doesn't know what to do with it. So she says, sit there until dad gets home. Well, it'd be 9, 10, 11, 12 hours till he gets home. Yeah. You know, and then he walks in and goes, what's the problem? Then all the dad and the father stuff comes in. So it's, right. it's fun. There's there's moments where having a dad that is gone is is awesome. You know, you get away with things for a little bit longer. <laughs> totally. But, but you're as, terrified of the yeah, return. As soon as the return comes home, you're like, OK, here we go. It's what like am I God do? coming back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did that to his truck one day. I, I hit, you know, as a kid, I'm driving and I hit a curb really good. So his Armstrong steering truck without power steering uh. all of a sudden felt like it had power steering. So I thought it was better. And I get a call. You improved it. 2.30 a.m. I'm sleeping in bed. Mom comes out and throws me the phone. Your father's on the phone. You know, he's driving to work like, what the fuck's wrong with my truck? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Wow. I forgot about that. But, you know, it's uh, he's still doing it. Still in there. Still trying to make the money, get the retirement and everything set up now. So mm. he's planning. He's got a good. My little brother, you know, hopefully he learns from my dad and my mistakes mm. financially and everything else behind everything, and we'll figure it out. But it's a great tool. You know, it makes – we don't have a degree. I never finished my college. Okay. I came out of college without a degree. And uh, to find a job that makes, you know, six figures without a degree is – Six figures? Yeah. Yeah. Shit. And that was not working. Last year was a fun year, and I didn't work that hard, but it makes really good, really good sense. That's amazing, though, that you can actually have that much uh, wrapped up in... I mean, I wasn't actually thinking six fucking figures. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it works really well, especially, like I said, without a degree. And that was the whole part of going to college is I was in college to make more money. So out of high school was 
uh, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to teach physics so I could blow stuff up, and I wanted to, <laughs> you know, keep uh, all the attention of my students. And basically, some of my favorite teachers were my my art teacher, hmm. and uh, also Josh, my Josh, you physics. artist, yeah, right. I did uh, I did some pretty good stuff with some pottery and some clay. Wow. It was uh, some ghost moments, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was relaxing. But uh, so I took those teachers that I loved and I wanted to do that same thing. Hmm. You know, teachers that I still remember to today. And I think that's part of it is, you know, that job was a job that was supposed to be meaningful mm-hmm. and carry me through everything. But when I heard three years into college that the starting wage is about $32,000 a year, you know, and this is 2002. Wow. I, I had a really good friend sit me down. We had lunch, and she goes, you know, she was a principal of a fairly large high school in Spokane. Uh-huh. She goes, if you're in it for the money, you're in it for the wrong reason. Yeah. So I stepped back. That's when I had to double-check everything. So and, you were going to be a teacher. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I got yeah. through all my GERs and started into my classes at Eastern Washington. And wow. Backed out. Huh. So here I am. You know, uh, my wife, she, uh, she also started as a teacher. She went to school as a teacher, and but they and she got out of it to become a therapist. Mm-hmm. Now, my God, the teacher salaries are so good. I'm like, you should go back to school as a teacher. And they're fighting for more. Oh my gosh! So I thought the same thing. I'm like, you know, and I, I told you how much I make, and I'm it literally in the back of my head. How much would I be willing to give up in order to go back to a job that might actually be more meaningful Plus than just you get a number? three months off or two months off? Yeah, and you schedule it all up. You're making and changing lives. But then I thought about it too. Is it's not the same as it used to be where you could create your own lesson plan and teach what you wanted to teach. It's and, not. Yeah. You know, now it's all mandated and by God. the book and you, you can't, it doesn't give you that. It's almost an art to teach these kids because you have to change based on who's in your class and yeah. how they learn and keeping their attention. It's not that way anymore. And so. as a teacher, you almost want it to be mandated because if you get off script, oh my God, lawsuits, mm-hmm. liability. A little bit of everything. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. So, okay, uh, railroad, okay. I'm thinking, what's the, what's the risk of, everyone I talk to talks about right now the, the risk of liability or insulting the public or all these different things. I mean, this is like weighing on our collective conscious. When I was a, when I was a therapist, I was constantly living to a degree in fear of getting a bad review or something like that. Mm-hmm. Do you live with this fear in the railroad? No, not at all. Really? Nope. The most fear I got is, uh, you know, you hear a lot about the coal trains or now it's the oil trains and, okay. you know, so on and so forth. And uh, you get a lot of people that make off the wall comments like no oil trains allowed through the city and they want to vote it down mm, and keep right. everything out. And, you know, I might make a comment here and there, but oh yeah, that's the only real reprimand I get. Huh. So it's that's I think that's what I like about my job. I don't really have to worry about what other people think. I show up to work. I do the dedicated work and then I go home. There's no bringing it with me except for the lifestyle of living next to my phone on call 24 seven. So that part sounds like shit, but the rest (laughs) sounds fucking amazing. Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's the job is awesome. I love the job. This, my brother said the same thing was he never knew that he can enjoy a job so much. Mm. And he's worked all sorts of, you know, high maintenance jobs where Mm. he's, you know, moving metal in metal. Uh, it's not a foundry. It's a, Slitter, so they cut the rolls of metal that we actually deliver to a the company. Slitter, yeah. So he ran all the hard, Great you know, hardcore title. machinery and wow. cranes that were lifting tons, which you know, when they break, you possibly kill you at any moment. So oh my gosh. he's used to the the heavy hardware. So, so what do you think of when you think of like the AI revolution that's coming? You know, that's going to claim what do they say? Seventy three percent of American jobs as they exist today will be 
non-existent within 20 years? I mean, do I, you... I don't believe it. You don't believe it? No. No. No, I don't believe it. I think there's a push uh, for large corporations that have way too much money to try and simplify their workforce, but the reality is almost everything we do, it's customer service and interaction-based. Mm. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter if you're making my my hamburger, mm -hmm. you know, that I'm ordering or if you're building my car or whatnot, but yeah. certain things will always be around. And I think customer service is one of them. I don't think it'll, I don't see how 70, what'd you say? 70, 73%, 73% yeah. of the workforce. I, I just don't see it. And they've been pushing, I mean, trains just are, aren't even, I mean, we're looking at the same thing. They want to reduce our crews, which they've sure. already done throughout the years, but things change in a corporation and things become easier and it takes less people to run things. That's yeah. something we have to look at, but automation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, are there, I mean, so one of my guests, uh, one of my guests, Colt, he's uh, an airline pilot and we were talking a little bit about autopilot. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything like autopilot in the, the railways? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. There's really? a lot of that right now. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, they're looking at software cause they're trying to take the human, uh, Oh, what do they want to call it? The, they're trying to take the human error out of the situation. Yeah. You know, they're trying to, well, I just wasn't paying attention. They want to get rid of all of that. So right. now everything's software driven, which makes my job extremely easier, but it yeah. takes all the fun out of the job too. You know, it's kind of like driving a race <laughs> car, but now you get into a race car. Imagine just pushing the button and saying go, and it takes you around the laps and then yeah. you're done at the end. You don't really get a drive. It's not about that. It's yeah. now it's just kind of, I get on, I push button. I'm there in case something happens if everything works correctly. So isn't that, that fascinating that, the level of risk actually is what makes it somehow enjoyable or pleasing. Oh yeah, it can, it can absolutely do that. I think we thrive off of that yeah. uh, little bit of, uh, uh, what am I thinking here? Adrenaline. Adrenaline. Totally. Yeah. Are you an adrenaline junkie? Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Skydiving, bungee jumping. You've done those. Street bikes, everything. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What was skydiving like? Skydiving was fun. It's not as fun as bungee jumping. Uh huh. That uh, the bungee jump is a constant. I don't know how to. It's just. It's amazing. You want more of it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I really? can't get enough of it. Yeah. I You've go, done it more than once. Oh yeah. Yeah. I go up to the bridge all the time. We go right up here. Uh, one of the best places in the Northwest is right here. And wait, do you have like your own equipment for it? No, I don't have my own equipment. <laughs> okay. <You> just, <laughs> it's a business that they've. Oh, they, do? they basically okay. bought a private bridge and they built their bungee jump over the top of a river. So, wow. you know, just to get your body to kind of do something it's not supposed to do. You get rid of all those safety hazards to yeah. kind of let go of that bridge and jump off is it's, it's quite the feat in uh, your mind. How much is a bungee jump these days? Oh, I say it's about 90 bucks somewhere That's in there. Horrible. I think it's a little more once you add the videotaping and the photography oh, and right. stuff like that. But now is it like skydiving where someone's like holding you mm -hmm. as you do it? No, it's no. all you. They put you in the harness, they give you a rope, they put you on the outside, this leg over, that leg over. <laughs> And they just say, jump, one, two, three, go. Oh and then you're gosh. off. And then uh, once you do the first jump, you can kind of start. You got the forward jump, the backwards jump, and then they've got a pad where they literally hook you up, and you run and just jump off a non-gated part of the bridge. So I don't see a lot of like uh, YouTube footage of like bungee jumps gone wrong, but I'm sure they're out Ooh, there. I don't know that I want to watch them. I'd like to keep <laughs> that out of, out of the idea. I mean, they do definitely go wrong. There's no, uh, sure. there's no doubting that, but I'd like to not watch those to make <laughs> it, it enjoyable you know this is like what my mom does to me all the time there's this one she, she's she's constantly saying like what could go wrong or or the worst possible case scenario and there was this one moment where we had just got this beautiful huge christmas tree mm -hmm. she comes over and she says well make sure you water it because you know your uncle 
He didn't water it, and it <laughs> caught on fire, and it burned his house down. Oh, thanks. And I went, wow, when was that, Mom? And she said, before he drowned. <laughs> oh, nice. Sounds like we have the same mom. She does the same thing. You know, it's, it doesn't matter what you're doing. There's always some kind of thing involved that's safety-related. You go to a water park. You know, back in the day, they found this guy that used to go through the tubes, and he'd set razor blades on the thing. So when you slid down. Oh, my God. Thanks, Mom. As a kid. Who the fuck to make, would do that? Right? To not go to uh, the lakes and the local swimming totally. holes. As a kid, she would scare me by saying, you know, if you do go, people take pitchforks, and they put them upside down in the water. <laughs> So when you're jumping off the cliffs, you've got to check everything around you. Like, thanks, mom. You know, it's always that way. I am There's quite sure something. that has never happened. But uh, what I'm is hilarious sure is that your mom has thought of it. Yeah. What's really hilarious is when I'm in the water swimming down and everybody's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm looking for pitchforks. I, I, it's just enough in your head to really screw with you a little oh bit. Oh, my gosh. So, but yeah. Do was, you think that's actually happened? I, I'm sure it has somewhere. You know, I feel like we need to Google old, this. Old nasty farmer. That, it was in the 70s. Gotta be. You know, Everything happened then, like right. the late 70s, early 80s. Gotta be some some guy that was tired of kids breaking on his property and jumping into his you know swimming hole or whatever it was. Yeah. Something. There's gotta be something down the line. She didn't just come up with it on her own, or she's extremely, extremely sadistic. Yeah, <laughs> and has an imagination better than a lot of she people. She should direct like hostile or the something. horror movies. Yeah, yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah, they make a little mini movie of this, like Safety by Mom. Oh my gosh, that'd be awesome. It's like that whole craze in the early '80s about like Halloween candy and like oh, oh yeah, they put syringes. Oh, syringes or there's razor blades. You can't have any of this. You know, we had to dump out our candy and sort through it, make sure there's nothing that could be opened oh or laced. I'm or... quite sure those stories were simply started by like the candy manufacturers of the world, so moms didn't get, keep on giving out candy or cookies. You know, yeah, possibly. That's... Or it's, or it's a real thing. I mean, I'm sure there's a few people out there sadistic enough to put just random stuff inside. You know, broken glass. It kind of and... makes you want to try it though and see if anyone catches it, right? No. You know, like oh no. I don't feel like going to jail that fast. <laughs> No, 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 no. This, um, we need to say right now to our audience that neither of us will attempt this. We are not suggesting <laughs> anyone out there do this. This is purely hyperbole and conjecture. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You're a good man, Josh. I, I want you to stay free, stay wild. This is all uh, <laughs> theoretical. Yeah. Going out to the millions, but we've now encouraged them not to do this. Yeah, so I think absolutely. we're safe. So, okay, you're a bit of a daredevil. Was the environment that your mom is not, was your no. dad? Um, aside from what I know in terms of him doing, like, you know, speeding in his car and things like that, I don't I don't know, honestly. Hmm. I don't see him daredevil very often. Mm -hmm. And when he does, he turns around pretty quick. There's He went out in the ocean one time. I haven't seen a guy run out of the ocean <laughs> as fast as him. That was pretty amazing. He saw a seal that scared him, thought sharks instantly, and he ran. Um, I know he's driven his car pretty much like every teenager or mid-adult sure. drives their car, but I, he's, you know. But he's not really a risk taker in no, that sense. No, I think, he, you know, he's still kind of subdued a little bit on that. I think if I got him out of his comfort zone, he'd jump with me if it was, you know, if we just specific, specify bungee yeah. jumping. Yeah, I think he'd jump. Now, it's clear to me that you, I, I think it's clear to me that you have a, a pretty re decent relationship with your dad, but... I guess I just got really curious uh, about something and maybe some context. One of the things that I've learned across the years is that men who are daredevils tend to have had relationships with their father in which they watched their father um, in diminished roles. That like, so this might be, you know, like, oh, your father is gone again or something like that. It was like as though their father was 
shrunken in their minds. And so they, they almost live larger to compensate for that. Do you, did you, was that true for you at all? Mm, diminished. Oh, I'll put my dad under the bus. I know. I feel bad. No, it's I kind of want to know. It's okay. He's never going to listen to this. So. Oh, he might. You never know. <laughs> you always think that. And then all of a sudden, three days later, you'll find it. It's coming. Uh, no, I, you know, he, uh, there's aspects of my life that I definitely compensate for things that I saw that he didn't get that he complained about a lot. Sure. Um, you know, financial things like, you mentioned the nice truck and things like this. Oh, yeah. Those aren't things that I, I had because I wanted them. One, every guy should have a working truck that can get things done around the house, especially when you got other things going on. Or I'm, a friend who does. Or a friend <laughs> or a trailer or however it works. Uh, that's how I grew up. My grandpa had trucks. My uncles had trucks. My mm-hmm. dad had trucks. He's been driving the same truck for 30-something years. And uh, so I always wanted a truck. Yeah. But, you know, through my 20s, I never needed one necessarily. He always had the truck that I could go borrow. So that's why I have the truck, the yeah. nice truck. It was supposed to be my last truck, but I doubt that'll happen. You wanted to be the guy. You were tired of relying on others. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And then, you know, there's other aspects of that, too, you know, financial things that he's gone through. You know, he, my mom's really, really she runs the house. Mm-hmm. You know, him being gone all the time and working, he focuses on that, and he focuses on taking care of the house. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hmm. the general handyman type stuff, he's always, if he's not working, he's at home working. And that's kind of always been him. He can't settle down and just be uh-huh. relaxed. He's got to be, his relaxing is going out weed eating the yard that is at somebody else's house. He's got two speeds off and hardworking. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And that's amazing too. It's a, it's a work ethic that uh, I grew up with. And I think I've kind of a, obtained that a little bit, but. Mm. Um, that's not what your wife has said. No. I'm uh, just joking. No, no. She would argue that. I work hard, but I play harder. And I think I, I open more time for play yeah. with my kids and with uh, things that I do in my personal life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't see a lot of him playing. I didn't see a lot of, you know, love and attention between him and my mom. Mm. It was always something a little bit more drastic than that. So I've always tried to make sure that I back off of that a little bit and make sure that I go and enjoy life a little more than he did. I feel like that. So I was really a equally aware of my father doing that and very aware that my dad, my dad was a grouch, honestly, like, and I love him and I have a great relationship with him now. Actually, I hope he's going to come on the podcast at some point. Oh, that'd be cool. Um, but I feel like I watched him in his thirties and forties come home exhausted from, from his day and his grind and just become a tired kind of crotchety mess. And I remember as a kid thinking, God, I never want to be that. And Honest to God, I can totally be that just right and left. Like, even having watched that, I I can't will myself out of that sometimes. It's like the channel is so carved that it's like, that's what I know to do. You need your outlet. Yeah, well, and I I feel like I've, I've worked hard to develop a few things of play, but mm-hmm. I think what you were saying, I think sometimes my play actually is, is actually work or things that... I, our work would be work to others, but to me, they seem really fun, but mm-hmm. honestly, they're probably not. They're just like more work. Yeah. My dad's that way, you know, landscape. That's, that's all work to me. I don't want to landscape anything. He comes yeah. home. That's his, I'm away from mom. I can just vegetate in the yard and do his thing and pull weeds. It doesn't matter what he's doing, but it gets him away in his own zone. Yeah. So, you know, when he's angry, he doesn't take it out on the family. He goes outside and takes it out on the yard, which is kind of neat. Yeah. Well, Hey, that's a, like, that's actually kind of a, a great coping mechanism. It works out really well for him. So mm. he's done that for a long time. A, a lot of guys do that, you know, with the shop or like I, they get home and I've always been baffled by that. They mm-hmm. get home and they go out to the shop for a couple of hours. I'm like, 
God, you get home from work and you're gonna work and and then what? You're gonna go to bed and work some more or somewhat? Depends on what it is, I guess. Everybody's got their outlet. Just depends on what it is. Very live and let live of you. Yeah. Everybody's got it. Everybody's got their thing. Their thing. And I think that's what brings us together is you gotta find everybody's thing and mm-hmm. find the ones that match and go that way. Yeah. So, you know, I don't have like it goes down to pretty much everything I've ever thought of doing. And I say thought because there's a lot of things that I wanna do, but I don't get to them. But uh, you know, when I bought my first street bike it wasn't because oh i really want the street bike it's because i wanted to be part of a a, a group of guys that go out and enjoy oh, wait, the road you also had a street bike oh yeah yeah I, I, in fact i almost <sighs> killed myself on my first one so tell me more uh the first bike i ever had i was 23 of course it was one of those hey i really want this bike and they're like you know you should get this this is really nice 250 it's a good <laughs> starter bike no screw that i went straight to my 600 nice so i had that you know very japanese suzuki yeah. 600 that i couldn't handle gsxr if i remember right and a brand new bike with the loan and everything i was sitting at about 10 grand and i put it into a tree at about 45 miles an hour the first one over the top of me was a paramedic we were riding with 32 guys oh my uh, the first seven guys that rode past me didn't even know i was off the road and it was up towards jackasses yeah it was it was pretty bad and uh so i get off the bike and i'm i'm fetal position can't move wind's knocked out of me and the guy over the top thought i was dead and uh i kind of recovered and you know i I did the typical stuff i called uh the wife and said hey uh, come pick me up and at that point it was like i'm I'm sorry i crashed the bike i'm hurt you know everything you said that was going to happen happened like you were right i was wrong just come pick me up please (laughs) Were you wearing a helmet at least? Oh, yeah. All my gear was on, so I was okay. I had the steel-toed boots and the leathers and nice. the helmet and everything. The boots with the fur and the whole Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can't have my Air Force Ones. <laughs> so I got off, and uh, you know, I had a friend come over, and he literally goes, Hey, you know, are you going to get back on? Don't be afraid of this. Hmm. I said, Oh, absolutely. I'm going to get back on. Like, I'm, you know, that's, I think, from the days riding the bulls and everything. You know, you fall off, you get right back on, and that's what I continually try and tell the kids, you know. Wait, did you actually ride bulls also? No. Oh, thank God. I wish. I want to really bad. That's actually on my bucket list. So I, I, I've been close. I went up to uh, Airway Heights, and they had a rodeo, and I was, I was really right there. I can see you doing it, actually. on there. I, I do a lot of stupid stuff. Wow. You know, when you have a job that if you break your leg, you can't go to work, that's oh, yeah. kind of, you're, you're flirting with fire there a little bit. Yeah. But, uh. No, I had a guy send me a Dear John letter, you know, it was the guy, it was the, the paramedic that picked me up off the ground, gave me a ride into town and said I changed his entire life, like he'd never seen somebody get that hurt before and walk away from it, and he curled into bed with his daughters, Wow. and uh, my wife got a hold of that letter, and all of a sudden it went from, oh, I hope you get another bike, and I want you to keep riding and do what you enjoy, to, oh, no, uh-uh, we're not doing this, you didn't tell me the accident was that bad. You know, it went from, oh, I just got in an accident, and the bike went off and hit a tree, to, you almost died. So I, uh, just up until 2012, I stayed off the street bikes for quite a while and I got back on and everything was fine. You know, I was as safe as can be. And then I realized it, it doesn't matter how safe you are, but all the other drivers around is what makes it unsafe. So it wasn't worth it. I got rid of it for the kids. Yeah. So I turned, uh, that one fun thing into another fun thing. And that's when I got the four by four, the, the forerunner and the Toyotas and we go up in the Hills or at least try. Isn't it interesting how kids change things? I mean, the things that you would do beforehand, suddenly now it's like, eh, maybe I should think twice. Yeah, we had a, I think that happened a lot. I think there's a point in your life where you start realizing that the kids come first. Yeah. You know, there's a transition there where you've got to kind of go in between everything. Right, right. 
So you you were in the military, is what you were saying earlier. Yeah, I did 12 years for the Air Force. You did 12 years? Yeah, we did 12 years Air National Guard. And uh, so it's the one, one week in a month, two weeks a year. Wow. And out of that time, I did probably almost three years active time. Really? So not a full four years, but 12 years of that alone was... It was a lot. Were you deployed at all? I deployed to Iraq between 2008 and 2009, and I only did three months. So hmm. I was what they refer to as a Pop-Tart. I was in and out. Okay. So it worked what, out pretty good. What uh, what popped you out of there? Uh, you know, my daughter popped me out of there, actually. Oh. So I had volunteered and got a lot of my friends to go. So there's, let's say, 10 of us in the shop. Hmm. I threw all the applications in the middle of the table and said, let's do this. And at the time, nobody had anything going on. And uh, so two weeks after I filed the paperwork to go to Iraq and it was accepted, I found out that we were pregnant with our first child. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, I started immediately asking if I could stay home and I was going to be gone for the duration of the pregnancy and her birth. But, you know, I had I got locked into it. And then when I got overseas, uh, my chief at the time put me in for early release and uh it was i was requesting just a week and they ended up giving me three months early oh wow so yeah it was it couldn't have been more perfect yeah. to get home and enjoy the holiday christmas and then uh, my daughter was born did just you see a any, few weeks later I, I, I don't know how to talk about this did you see any active combat or how uh, did that work define active combat so we were yeah. in an active combat zone but uh i was on base most of the time okay i didn't have to go anywhere uh too bad but there were mortars flying over my head and getting shot at and wow. you know that was part of it you know you go in knowing you're hearing gunfire every single day you wake up to it in the morning it was all normal what what's what's that like to to go into something knowing that it's different than bungee jumping it's different than motorcycle riding but it's similar it exists on a similar continuum but i would say it's knowing that death is on the line yeah it's another fear it's a whole another you know there's there was one point where you could literally hear the mortars they were shooting multiples. And so they get closer and closer. And part of my job was to actually track them on the base and see where they were hitting. And uh, when you watch that map get closer and closer and closer to your location, all of a sudden it becomes a whole nother ball game, you know? And all I can see is my pictures that are up on the wall of my daughter. And um, the very first pictures are her from uh, wow. uh, my wife that she mm -hmm. sent me while she was pregnant. So it was uh, a lot of things go through your mind at that point. Did you get scared? Oh yeah, definitely scared. I mean, I'm not going to say I wasn't scared. Sure. Absolutely scared. Your yeah. life's on the line. So, but uh, I'm glad I only did three months of it. I wish I could do more, honestly. It was uh, it was the collaboration of all of a sudden everything that I worked for in the military made sense. Uh -huh. You were actually out there saving lives or making a difference on what was going on. Yeah. And it was the first time that my job that I had been working towards, you know, somebody walks in, pulls me aside and takes me a takes me in the back and goes, hey, I just want to let you know that what you did last night literally saved me and my team's life. Mm. So thank you for what you did. And he shakes your hand and he walks away. I'll never see him again. Yeah. But all of a sudden, everything you work for makes sense. And uh, everything else at home is small. Mm. You know, the job, this job, no matter what we do, stateside is easy. And yeah. it's all about perspective. I think that's something I've carried with me a long time is life and the easiest way to look at it is life is all about perspective. Yeah. You know, what one has, the other one may not, but it's about perspective. I was, I was, uh, visiting a, um, some, so in the, I don't, I think it's all branches of the army feed into what's called majors school, major school. And, uh, captains go 
to this academy, which I think is very close to like a graduate school, basically in the army. Okay. And they, they, I, I don't, I want to say it's nine months or a period of time. They go into this majors school and they get trained from top to not top notch people and they, they rank up, they go to major. Um, so I have a member of my family who went through that process and they were becoming a major in the, in the, uh, Marines. And, um, they, they ended up having, uh, this big celebration that we got invited to. And I was talking with some of the officers, um, who were there. And at the time I was a therapist and my wife's a therapist and, um, they, we were mutually fascinated by each other. It was like, <laughs> it was like we were both examining this alien being. Mm-hmm. We were kind of all about these soft skills and they were definitely developing these primal martial disciplines, you mm-hmm. know? And I remember what one of them said to me, I'll never forget it. He said, you teach empathy all the time, but the reality is you don't want me to learn empathy because if you teach me how to roll take and how to see through his eyes and walk a mile in his shoes, I won't be able to do my job. I won't be able to kill him. And actually, in spite of what you think, you want me to be able to pull that trigger in Mm -hmm. the end. Absolutely. What a different way to think. It's a whole nother level when you actually go down to that road. Yeah. You know, it, like I said, it's a, it's a matter of perspective. Those guys have a whole nother job that most, I'd say 90% of everybody that's walking around shopping at the grocery store and everything else in their daily routine doesn't even think about it. Right. Can't even comprehend it except for when they go to a cinema and they watch it on the TV. Right. Know? But to live, it's a whole nother ball game. It is what our ancestors up until uh, maybe even the last few hundred years of relative safety, because I even think like civilization as a whole was pretty still unsafe until maybe the last 300 years, relatively speaking. But our ancestors viewed the world that way. I mean, mm-hmm. there were there were only two roles, live and life and death, you oh, know, yeah. and it was like that was always on the line. We developed these primal skills of courage and strength and honor and mastery, right, which we are so disconnected from. And one of my favorite authors, uh, uh, Sebastian Younger, he has this statement, which I, I, I can't hardly forget, where he, he says, uh, a ma- there's very few things in our society that a man will lose a meal over, let alone his life over anymore. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you're talking about active duty in the military, that's what you're talking about. You're willing to lose your life over something. Yeah, that's something. What is that something, though? Well, I was going to ask you, yeah. what, what, why, why did you throw those, those uh, applications on the table? Why were right? you so hot to try it? Um... It's my belief that, uh, you know, what I joined, of course, coming into college and everything, we had, you know, 1911 hit pretty hard. So we had the Twin Towers fall. Mm. And I specifically remember watching everything happen, all of it. And I think that's a big derivative of why I went into the military. And then, uh, Hmm. you know, you you add everything else on there, college and money and everything else. And it just seemed like the place to go. I didn't really have anything else to do. Yeah. So it all makes sense after that. And then... uh, you know, the military served its purpose for really teaching me what I needed to survive outside of everything mm. in terms of, uh, I mean, finances all the way up into what to do in a scenario that you can't control that mm. might turn physical or anything like that. So right. it was, you know, it was a part of my life that taught me to be who I needed to be or do who you, I thought I needed to be. Do you feel like you're better able to handle yourself, even just, you said, physically, right? Like, mm-hmm. if if push comes to shove, you'll be able to shove back. Yeah, um, I haven't had to test it. You know, knock on the wood that's right here in front of me. So <laughs> right. hopefully I don't come to that. But, uh, you know, when push comes to shove, I think I could handle it better than most. Yeah. So it works out. 
Uh, my brother-in-law is a sixth degree black belt in Taekwondo. And we went out to celebrate him getting a new job tonight. And it was a very oh, cool. big moment. And I, I gave him the, um, the, the book of, I think it's called the Book of Five Rings, which is the samurai, um, the classic samurai manual of strategy. and Bushido. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, definitely the way of the samurai. And it's written by one of the most famous samurais. And what he did to gain his fame was he would just go through the streets challenging men to the duels to the death. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a different way to live. Like, I'm going to prove myself by going and challenging another master swordsman to a duel to the death. <laughs> Man. I'm, wow. You imagine that today? Oh, my God. How would that work out? Not very good. Is there an equivalent? I mean, do, do we see people doing these things? I, I, don't, I don't think we have anything like that. No. I mean, not in our culture that we see on this side. I think people are more than willing to to take down people, but I, I don't think it's the same thing. Not like that, but you know, he was to, to gain his fame. I, I like how you put that. It's to gain his fame. He went around and challenged masters, but what fame, like at that point, at what cost? Yeah. Right. I mean, you're literally going to take somebody's life just to be famous. Yeah. Well, at 16, so. he goes out and he challenges his first guy and he challenges him to a stick duel. They have both have these stick swords mm-hmm. and he beats the guy to death. Okay. <laughs> Wow. 16. And he's famous. Yeah. He's not living with PTSD or anything. No, not at all. I think he just, uh, wow. Yeah, there's this, your Bushido. The strong, you. the strong survive. Exactly. Oh, it's super brutal, right? Oh, absolutely. But maybe we're too used to this softness. You know, maybe, maybe as a culture, while it's, I, I mean, I'm certainly glad that I don't have to go around challenging people to a duel to the death. I, I'm certainly glad that I don't imagine a conceivable world where my kids are going to have to defend their backyard with muskets. Oh, yeah. But, but I mean, maybe we are too soft as a culture. Maybe we should have more of those moments. No, I think we're absolutely too soft as a culture. I think that's a, you know, a lot of these uh, titled as millennials. You know, God, do I fall in that? I don't know. No, I actually I heard, just real quick, I don't think it's millennials. Okay. Because I think you're me. a millennial. I think I'm still Gen X, but on the cusp of being a millennial. Mm-hmm. I've heard that it's everyone born after 1995, which is sometimes called Gen Z or iGen, the first generation that grew up with iPhones. Mm-hmm. And I think that they are actually the ones you're about to talk about. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's a whole other... For them, it's they've never had to really go through... They're just at that cusp where they might remember, you know, 19... You know, 1911. Um, 9-11. 9-11, excuse me. Thank you. And uh, you called it 1911 earlier, and I was like, God, that sounds so great. That must be the jargon that, right? That no. in, inside 9-11, just 911. No, I like 1911, that's my yeah. new thing from now on. Yeah, um, no, they you know, they, they're not going to grow up with that kind of stuff. And it's even war now is going to turn into a you know, technology like a drone match economy, yeah. economy, and everything else. And yeah, you know, that's it's not going to be hackers, right? Exactly. And that's all we see right now, it's just all in the all in the news and everything else, and fabricated by voting. and you know, we're going to screw up your election and, you know, turn Trump into the president. It's like Russia was doing a bad thing or something. Yeah. So it's, it, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting to see these people grow up in a, a world like that. And, you know, it's almost to the point now where I feel like, you know, the world war three that everybody talks about wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. Tell me more. V- very interesting. Right. <laughs> so I think we get checks and balances a lot. And I think, uh, you know, we, 
we've grown up through the ages. If you look at history, there's been a constant act of war for quite a while. Yeah. And it also teaches people to, you know, grow up in that kind of scenario, whether it be um, all the way from the Civil War up and then everything prior to that. And even into Vietnam, World yeah. War One, World War Two, it's a whole other generation. You look at these grumpy old guys that served and, you know, they don't put up with any shit. But now at times you don't really see that a lot with these kids yeah. growing up. You know, they put up with everything because I think they keep their noses in their phones so much that they're just used to being bombarded with ideas and thoughts. And, yeah. You know, they no longer get what they believe in from the people that are directly around them because now the phone or, you know, the different social medias has put so many ideas in their head right in front of their face mm. that they don't know what to choose. Hmm. And until they're put in that scenario of, we're actually coming together as a country to fight for the world. It may be that way. I mean, even, even like a generation, our, my grandparents' generation, they fought in World War II, the greatest generation. They, uh, you know, I had a, we have a grandmother who lived, she's still alive, 96. Wow. Uh, another one, she just died at 94. But their daughters are like my, my mother, my wife's mother, they're in their early seventies and they're falling apart. And I'm like, God, the boomers, they fell far afield of the tree. My <laughs> gosh. Like even a generation prior, they were tougher, mm -hmm. more resilient that farm culture or something, yeah. right? They were drinking the whole milk. Yeah. We, we don't embrace that anymore. No, you know, it's, uh, gosh, it's even our kids now. It's like, Hey, I need you to go do manual labor. Well, what do you need to do? Just <laughs> dig a abuse. ditch, dig a ditch. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, you know, and as a parent, it's like you need to work hard for what you get. But a lot of kids, we don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to grow up. I think as our culture grows, we design things to be easier. Even coming down to the other day, my kids, I'm out riding a bike or I'm on this or that. But now there's electric everything. Yeah. My kids don't even have to pedal anymore. They just <laughs> crank it and away they go. I'm like, well, how are you going to grow up? You're not getting strong. We're not out sharpening sticks and running around like our boys. You're not having fights on the baseball fields anymore. Right. Or, you know, you get six or seven guys from the neighborhood that, you know, one doesn't like another. You don't deal with that that way anymore. No. You know, for us, it was we'd go out and play football and eventually it turned into full on tackle football totally. for the neighborhood. And there was always the kid that got hit in the face, you know, and yeah. then it turned into a fight and you learned how to deal with that. Yep. And that went into high school. You know, we had fights in high school all the time. And I feel like everything's being so subdued that the reality is diminished in terms of violence for our kids, what they see and uh, what they experience is all social media. Well, it's interesting because if I was to endure a punch to the face, I think I could handle that way more than I could the attacks on social media or the emotional attacks that come um, through betrayal and loss or, or simply words. I mean, mm -hmm. like, God, give me a punch to the face any day. At least I can see my attacker. Right. And you don't have to live through it over and over and over again. Right. Exactly. Whereas social media, you know. 30 years from now, somebody bring it up and be like, hey, remember that time? Oh, my god. And they'll gosh. show you the picture or the video or whatever pops up of that guy that should be standing there helping. Right. But he's just standing there with his cell phone taking videos of the same scenario. My kiddo got into a fight at school last year. Well, no, he didn't. I mean, that's actually... There was a, a bully, a bully. Okay. Um, who cornered him. And this had been building up for, I mean, just several weeks, maybe even like a month. This kid... I mean, if I, if, I, if I say what I think, he's a bad egg. He's just a bad egg. 
you know how kid, there's no bad kids. I think he's actually a bad child. Okay. I'm going to label him. I'm going to okay. label him. He's a villain. And he's picking on my kid. <laughs> and um, and I just want to beat the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. I mean, if of I'm really candid. But, and, and so, like, you know, we, we teach our, our sons, our, all our kids to to handle themselves, but also to try and resolve it with peace and, you know, be kind and try and win with words, all this. But he had reached the end of his resources. So we finally say to him, hey, this kid, is, I mean, he's calling him like a pussy and all this stuff. To, trying to provoke the Trying fight. to provoke him. I said, hey, if, if he gets in your face again, if he's shoving you again, shoving him down, all this stuff, I said, you hit back. You, you go, go for it. Well, he didn't. He got pushed into it, and he he just wouldn't. He didn't he didn't want to. I mean, he he just and I, I don't quite understand it. But some other kid right beside him said, as he's being just torn down verbally, mm-hmm. says, "I'm getting all this on video right now, man." Instead of helping him, and my I know, and my my son is just like his heart is breaking in that moment. Hmm. I just I hate that. And for me, you know, it wasn't a cell phone. It was like, okay, I've got one choice right now and I'm gonna fight my way out of it. And if I lose, I lose, but mm-hmm. at least at least I've got something I, I have left, you know, which is some dignity. Yeah. And No, being I think we Man, that's hard. Especially with your kids. It's like I I think if my kids got cornered like that, I, I would hope that they would understand that there are levels and you have to reach those levels. So you know, if you can't get out of it verbally and he starts pushing you in a corner, if you've got nowhere to go except through him, yeah, you do your best to go through him. Yeah. And you hope that they can handle themselves in that and they don't just get crushed when they do it. But I, know. I would rather see them fight physically and fail in the event that it was right and justified than see them cower down and I just know. take it because that verbal abuse Ugh. can be a lot worse than the physical abuse. I so know. well, and and you know which son it is. It's actually my my bigger, more like, mm-hmm. and and I gotta tell you, it was so surprising for us. And part of it has actually been that we've drilled into him that he could really hurt others. So this is part of what's going on in his mm-hmm. mind. Like, well, well, I could hurt him really bad, and I don't want to hurt him. And you know, at one point, I was like, "This kid's being mean to you. I mean, you, you might need to push back." And he's like, "Well, Dad, then you have just two mean boys." That's and true. I'm like, geez, okay, Gandhi. Well, you know how everything has perspective, right? It, exactly. Think about it this way. So take your kid. He's stuck in the corner. He's getting yelled at by this other kid. Now let's look at the villain, as you described him. Right. As the villain. This evil let's, child. Let's take this child and say his dad is an abusive alcoholic. Which I assume him to be. Let's just say it because sometimes that's exactly sure. how it goes. Yeah. Maybe he's, you know, that's the only way he knows how to socially be accepted is to show his power via yeah. tearing people down and tearing them apart. Now... Um, your son's ability to just kind of hold back and not physically lead into exactly what that kid wants may have been way more strength than what you would have ever thought shown physically. Totally. And allowed him to maybe even be more under control of his own physical abilities after that. And I hope so. He has the resilience to actually not throw that punch, to not feed in to exactly what that kid wants. You don't push a guy into a corner and continue at him. He's waiting for the first punch. Absolutely. So he can just attack and unload. Well, in fact, we had a teacher, the the, the teacher, we we went to him, we talked to him, and he said, hey, guys, confidentially, I'm going to tell you this, I've run out of options. I can't really do anything more. I I keep wanting your son to just sock him in the face. Mm -hmm. And he said, and and here's what I'm going to tell you. If he does that, he needs to go hard and he needs to go fast because this kid is a closer. Really? <laughs> We're like, oh shit, huh. maybe you shouldn't hit him. So then I'm like, I'm like, okay, so here's what you do: you tear him down psychologically. 
<laughs> so you you start talking about how his parents don't love him. That's what you just really attack that. Oh like, yeah. Oh, I'm a great dad right there. Say that and then have him turn the first punch. He'll be the other <laughs> side. Man, that's you know that's a scenario that it's a hard scenario. You never know what's really going to happen. I know. You hope for the best at the end of it. You know, you, we all want that movie scenario where kids in the corner he just comes out and you get that swing away punch and clicks totally. him right right on the button the and, justified kid yeah and everybody just everybody gets the video where oh, the, the, the bully goes down <laughs> but uh, you know sometimes that doesn't happen but yeah. you, you know you, you gotta stand your ground you have to stand your ground oh, that's that right and I think that's the biggest thing and his way of standing his ground is knowing that his opponent's not gonna hit him have you ever had any any fights Anything? oh absolutely yeah absolutely um <laughs> I suplexed a kid, thought I knocked him out. That was in high school, you know. Really? And what did he do? The difference between the days is that I didn't have a group of kids all around oh, me. Oh, no. I had my teachers all around me circling the kids up. They were my phys ed teachers, of course, and my coaches as well uh -huh. uh, for sports. And they knew that you had to fight this out, that it wasn't just a, oh, I'll just break it up and go your separate ways. This was, this guy talks too much and he needs to figure that out. Yeah. And, you know, they would circle up, make it completely, you know, uh, fair, if you can call it that, uh -huh. with, you know, the big guy picking on the little guy. But uh, I, uh, I reversed him, and I suplexed him, and I snapped his neck, and I thought I oh probably killed him. But he was unconscious for about 10 minutes. He You're picked back up. You're a horrible yeah, man. Horrible, horrible. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I never had to deal with anything after that. Yeah. So, and we had a, another scenario that was kind of the same way. A kid had getting picked on constantly in class, and finally, you know, he takes that uh, four-inch math book oh. and runs right across that guy's face, knocks him straight down into the ground, and hits him repeatedly until somebody pulls him off. Yeah. Guess what? He never had to deal with that again. It was the same way with me. Eighth grade, I, I was a really chubby kid. And they during football before the game, they would go truffle shuffle. Oh no! So they would make me lift my shirt up and kind of do the the belly jiggle. It was so humiliating. Well, I don't know why I was okay with that during football, but after football ended, there was one kid who kept on doing it during gym, and and, and you know he was kind of popular quasi-popular. Looking mm -hmm. back on it, he probably wasn't actually one of the cool kids. He was on the periphery trying to be cool. And so he would chant and yell, get me to do it. Finally, I had had enough. I had really had enough. And I had taken like three weeks of karate in fifth grade. And so I knew a, I knew a couple of really good moves. I got that kicked down. <laughs> totally. Three weeks in, we're good. <laughs> so I had that, that one move and I did it to him. I gave him a bloody nose. I gave him a bloody lip, came down with my knee on his stomach, dropped him in this Perfect. one solid move, well-executed moment. Mm -hmm. And I love, this is so sweet, so innocent. I literally say to him, you want to be friends? <laughs> I really wanted to be friends. I, I actually, you know, I think at the heart, most kids, they, they, they don't want to be aggressors. They don't want to, like, destroy someone's life. I think we're doing the best that we can. I think, I certainly know I was. I think that kid who was under my knee was. I actually look back and I'm like, he was probably just trying to do what he wanted to be accepted to. This kid, you talked about the bully in this case. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt in my mind that whatever he is doing is being modeled for him in some way. Yeah. And he's responding to his own scenario. It's way more complicated than just an evil kid versus a good kid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're all kind of... Everybody's got their own stories in the backgrounds. But we should, you know, I, I actually read a, a research say, this is kind of interesting, that said one of the, uh, the leading contributions to prison time is actually a lack of schoolyard fights. Really? 
Yeah, so this is a really weird scenario, and I'm not exactly sure, and my brain is fuzzy enough from whiskey right now where I can't remember the direct correlation, but I, I remember they really linked it well. Like, people aren't actually getting these these things out enough, and so what ends up happening is they don't know their own limits. They don't know... So they get into these situations outside of school and end up doing irreversible damage. They haven't had these physical encounters where they're able to test themselves in simple and small ways. Mm -hmm. So the stakes keep getting bigger and bigger as they get older, and all of a sudden they're holding a handgun, you know, in their hands. And it's like, oh my God, I wish you would have just tested a very simple kind of you shove me, I shove you on the playground to learn your limits. Mm -hmm. That may have what it meant what it was. I, I can't exactly remember it. Oh. It seems a little strange. Well, you add, you know, that your weapons into it and so forth. One of the things I've always been interested in, like you mentioned samurais and Bushido and everything, when you're kind of fighting for your life and, right. you know, let's say he's got no family, he's got nothing to you know, really lose, then he's going to challenge the people that think that they're better than him so that maybe in the future he can start a school or, you know, I watch a lot of, uh, Ip Man. Oh yeah. If you watch yeah, all yeah. those series, oh, you know, yeah. it was like you had a challenge in order to put yourself at a level where everybody knew your name and knew that you were the best. Right. They weren't dying while doing it. Most times uh -huh. they were just a, you win or lose type battle. Right. And I think we've, we've lost that as a culture. And one of the things that I've always found interesting is a lot of the motorcycle clubs, hmm. you know, local, old history stuff like that they live by a code of rules and you know they have a specific and one of that one of the biggest things that always drove me was that when you had an issue with your guy that was either talking behind your back or this or that is you took it outside yeah. and you let the fist fly and then when the guy's on the ground you pick him up off and you figure out what's going on and right. you work through it and you know it was never left to go too much farther than that other than you know stuff that i probably never heard of you don't do that but shit though anymore today why don't we though <laughs> it's a great question. Why don't we? Well, I'll tell you why I think people don't. I think people don't because they believe, I think mistakenly, a dominant myth, uh, whatever doesn't kill me makes me weaker. I don't think, I think that people believe themselves to be very fragile and that if I confront you and you yell back at me, it will actually destroy my world, that I am mm. so fragile that I can't handle confrontation, I can't handle challenge, that it will do irreparable violence to my being. And I think that people are terrified. I mean, my, my sister's out on a, a ride-along with the cops. Uh, she, she's a, a public figure, and she was on a ride-along, and the cops got called in the middle of it to go solve a problem with the neighbors got into a conflict, and the cop goes, well, have you... Um, have you tried to go over there and ask them to turn down the music? And they're like, well, no, God damn it, that's your job. Right. You know, I mean, like... Why would I do that? Yeah, well, it's called people skills, dude. A lot of people don't like confrontation. You grow up without it. And when you take confrontation out of the equation for your entire life, you know, in your 20s and 30s, all of a sudden it's like when you're presented with it, you don't know how to handle yourself. Maybe that goes back to your whole jail time thing. It's, you know, when you don't deal with confrontation at a level that requires a weapon ah. and all of a sudden you have access to that weapon. Right. People don't know how to deal with that because you get a sense uh, there's just huh. endorphins flying and, you know, everybody talks about blacking out and don't remember what happened and so on and I so forth. I saw red. Exactly. You yeah. don't know what's going on, and uh, you don't know how you're handling yourself until you actually see it, you know, so maybe that needs to be constructed into a daily life routine, yeah. you know, you need to know how to handle yourself in that scenario, like, you need to know that you can stay calm and relax and handle yourself in that kind of scenario, and that's something we don't teach our kids anymore at all, No. you know, they might, we have the kids every now and then that 
they wrestle and they do this stuff and then they might get into uh, like what's big right now like the MMA yeah, yeah, style yeah. fighting and stuff like that and maybe right. they can UFC. handle that that confrontation but it's going to go one of two ways either you're going to be confident and relaxed mm. and you're just going to be like a bouncer where you just cross your arms and deal with the guy <laughs> just yelling you know because yeah. you know you could easily take care of it or you're going to be afraid and run away from it right. so confidence what kind of confidence are we looking for now? You know, even, even you and I, as a man, like your confidence level, like what is it? It's, I know very good and well that I could protect what I have. And if anybody steps in and tries to take what I have, I can defend that. Plus you've got a badass dog. Well, Jax, he looks like he could take someone down. He does, but he's the sweetest little dog. (laughs) He's 50 pounds. If I just want to cuddle and wag my tail. I know. You he's know. wandered into my house before. Just hung exactly. out. I think so our dogs have done that. We tested this the other day. My 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 sister comes over. We're not home. Front door's open. Hey, just come in and, you know, grab this item and leave. She walks in and my dog looks at her and just goes to the back of the house. Doesn't squeak, oh, nothing. Yeah. She lets him out the back door being nice. Like, hey, I want you to go outside. He doesn't come back in. He's like, no, I'm good. Whatever's in that house you can have. I'm just going to hang out in the backyard, <laughs> stare at you. So Stare at you. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to work. You know, I'm not going to train him to be anything other than what no, he is. he's a so sweetheart. He's, he's pretty awesome. But uh, but you could handle yourself. You feel like you are the master of your domain. Uh, yeah, in most scenarios. Yeah. I, I have that confidence, and I, I enjoy that confidence. I think that's, uh, you know, you walk around with your, your shoulders back and your head right. held high, knowing that, you know, when something happens, I can respond. And, you know, it's not even a, it's not a fight scenario. You know, it, a lot of it comes down to looking them in the eye. Yeah. Well, not even that, like get confrontation out and think about being in a country. This happened just the other day. I'm at Winco of mm. all places. And this lady checking out just collapses on the floor. Oh. We're talking 250 pounds worth of lady wow. laying on the floor. Everybody else is staring just at her like small girl. Somebody needs help. Well, I went over, grabbed her fireman, well, I didn't fire my carrier, but I dragged her over to the thing and made huh. sure she was fine. And I think that's, you know, when you can handle yourself in the scenarios that are presented, not just in the amount of, you know, violent scenarios, but just in scenarios where it's, do you know what to do in this scenario? Yeah. Is, it, it's a confidence booster to know that I can handle that scenario. And it helped. And it felt good, too. Yeah. You know, t- you know, at the end of it, she's like, oh, are you a paramedic? Are you a firefighter? It's like... No, ma'am, just military, and you know, no, ma'am, just all man. I've had to do this before, and <laughs> you'll be okay. You know, I ask the basic questions and so on and so forth. And see, this is what I mean. You're a pro, bro. I try, I try. I like that. <laughs> Maybe I'll get that tattooed across my chest, Probo. Oh God, God, we could do that. We can make this a thing. Hashtag Probo. Pro bro. Pro bro. Hashtag Probo. Oh my gosh, dude. We can get that down. I, I love it. I if you did that, I. I would be proud to be near you. There we go. Just routinely as you take off your shirt like a Superman Ooh. tattoo. Don't challenge it. I'm really bad with that. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome if you did this. Well, two days later. Two days guess, later. What, hey, guess what you just hey, did? Hey, man. No, 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 no. You didn't just do that, did you? <laughs> yeah, I did. No. So, so um, you know, I, I I was interested when you said that you, you went to Iraq in part to capitalize on these skills, to bring them all together. That was a really big thing to you. And, and in my mind, what I was thinking was, in some ways, you wanted to test your metal. Absolutely. You, you wanted to see if these things, and I think a part of that is you wanted to feel alive. You wanted to feel like your contribution was raw. It was in the open. It was that you were real, mm-hmm. that these things weren't just practice. I didn't know what was going to come of it. Uh, when I did it, I just thought it was the right thing to do. 
And then uh, going with guys that I've known for years, uh-huh. it was, uh, you know, very sobering to know that we were all going to go together. But what I gained out of it is something I didn't even think about. You know, I didn't think about all of a sudden everything makes sense. Yeah. That, you know, that clarity that I got afterwards. There's a scene in, uh, I don't know if you ever watched the movie Hurt Locker. No. Um, he's a EOD tech and he goes over and over and over again over there. And then there's a scene at the, I think it's the middle of the movie. He comes from an active war zone dealing with bombs and death on a daily basis. And he comes in and his wife goes, why don't you go pick a box of cereal for the kids? Mm. So he's by himself walking down this aisle and he just narrows the vision and he realizes that there's a whole shelf full of cereal. And he's, you could see it in his eyes without any words, you know, that he's just, this is complete bullshit. Mm. Like we have everything over here. And your worst decision of the day and the hardest thing to make is what box of cereal I'm going to buy. Mm. When you're dealing with people that, you know, I've seen little nine-year-olds beat the crap out of each other for clean water, for crayons, for Gatorade. We used to chuck over the fence. Wow. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole nother, when you, it's very sobering yeah. to say the least. And uh, it, my favorite, I will get this tattooed, is life is about perspective. Yeah. In every instance, it's all perspective. It's how you look at each scenario. It's how you look at the future, the past. Right. You know, it's all about your perspective. Right. Uh, fortunately for me and something my father has given me and my my family's given me is that I've had a really good perspective. I haven't had a lot to really dwell on uh-huh. as a child and growing up compared to the hard times that other people have had. Yeah, I mean, you don't seem or sound bitter at all. I mean, even though your dad was you know, out and about often, you sound really in touch with, with growing up, with the gifts you were given. I mean, you sound pretty solid in Uh, those ways. Thank you. Uh, I, I take that as a compliment. (laughs) Um, do you feel that? I do. I do for a lot. And you know, who we are is based in the past, like what you've learned. Sure. I think that definitely escapes who you become. And we carry our history with us in every room. Exactly. And, you know, with your quest to figure, you know, one of the things that we talked about is, you know, I wanted to know what we were going to talk about before we went on the (laughs) podcast. And I thought about it. And, you know, the the main question I had is, what does it mean to be a man? Yeah. And, you know, before you even started the podcast, I think that's something that everybody struggles with. And I say struggle lightly. Yeah. But I think if I had to say what it is, it's, it's the passing along of information, lessons learned. You know, being able to make sure that my son or even my daughter grows up with the experiences that I've had knowing what's going on. And, Mm. you know, um, I think that has to do with passing down the things that you've learned and uh, your experiences like and it doesn't work if you're not all together either. And part of that comes from like, what do you mean if you're not all together? So and I mean, all together as a society. Yes. Like we we tend to simplify everything down to the us, but you don't survive. You don't build a business by yourself very often successfully. You don't build a uh, career by yourself. Usually your family has to sacrifice something to help you out. You don't build yourself as a man by yourself either. It's kind of a collection of everything you have that's right so and i think that's passing the information along it's it's giving everything that you've experienced through life back down to somebody that's why one of the first things i ask people when i meet them as they're especially the older generations uh my grandfather and his friends that are now 74 75 76 is if you had to do everything all over again what would you do and the reason is because now they've got 70 something plus years of experience so much wisdom what is it something that in life that you would change to do over? And you get so many different broad ranges of 
of, of different answers for that. And, you know, it can come all the way down to, oh, I would have taken stock out for this. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, if hindsight's 2020, that's <laughs> a very general. Would have bet it on that 1999 yeah, World exactly. Series. Exactly. I would have I bought my, you know, my Chevelle, <laughs> my 1971 Chevelle. I would have <laughs> totally. kept it, not sold it. Or you get the very, very enlightening one that is, no matter what decision, this is the best one I've ever heard. And it's uh, from a friend that lent me his lake cabin for huh. about a uh, about a three-day stint. We sat down and we were having drinks one night. And he goes, you know... If you go through life making every decision based on your children and what is good for them, you can live an amazing life because mm. everything you've done is for the right reason. And uh, I've taken that to heart and Leg- I try to make Legacy. Exactly. You know, and I try to make that based on that. You know, you have a lot of people that build a career that takes them out of their family for everything. But uh, when I'm with my family, at least I try and be there all the time. That's why I don't make a lot of things. It's, mm-hmm. it's not because I don't want to go. I want to go to these things all the time. I want to go to the bars and hang out with the guys. I want to go yeah. to the sports stuff and do my own thing. I want to jump on my motorcycle again and go by myself up into the mountains. But that's not what it's about. It's about the experiences with my kids and taking everything I have from the very basic fishing events to like, yeah, this is how you tie a hook. Right. You know, those little things judge like I was sitting, I was 23 and I remember sitting with my best friend and we had gotten this project where we had to build a box out of wood and a power drill, the simplest little thing. And he goes, how do you use this? And it dawned on me that his dad has never taught him how to use any kind of tools, ratchets, screwdrivers, for the most part, all power drills. So those things, you know, my dad, I grew up lucky enough that my dad taught me all of that stuff. You know, we were working on cars and motors, and that experience leans into everything. But it doesn't work unless we're, a con- uh, you know, a collective in a society right. where I have that technological. I know how to work on cars and fix a flat and do huh. this and do that. He's got all the sports knowledge, and he's got all of the uh, ability to calm people down and bring you like together. Like he's very, very social. And I was very unsocial. That's why him and I match very well because he brings everybody together and, you know, I can help him when he needs help. So I think, you know, you kind of surround yourself with people that have a very different type of atmosphere and what they learned growing up. You know, it's interesting. My dad didn't, uh, I have a different relationship with my dad than it sounds like you do. My dad had a lot of soft skills. I mean, he was a minute is a minister and, um, a teacher, an orator, and um, I feel like what I learned from him was words. Okay. I, I, I learned how to say things on cue. I learned how to to say things well, uh, how to story reality, sometimes how to almost bring something into reality with words, um, which almost sounds like magic and I, I would think it is magic until I'd watched him you know he's a it's amazing how he can sell something by saying it over and over until you believe it mm-hmm. that's a certain skill set absolutely um, but he certainly didn't teach me how to work on plumbing work on the car he didn't teach me how to defend myself he never went to one football game that I I was in um, and I, I've got to be honest I feel disappointed in my education. Not that I needed to learn how to change a tire. Cause the truth is he actually has changed my tires for me before. <laughs> so he knew how, but, uh-huh. but I think maybe that's part of it. He, he does know how, but he never took the time to teach me. I learned all those things by watching him, but he didn't teach me how to talk. I just watched him. And maybe it's about a father who takes the time to take his skills and replicate it with their kid. 
-hmm. You know, like, here's what I have to teach you. It may not be much. It may just be words, but let me, let me show you how to string together a lecture. (laughs) But see, and your words are so much more powerful than some of the basic stuff too. It's like, don't, don't minimize what he may have left you with, Mm, you know, mm -hmm. because it definitely, you need that. The power of word is pretty amazing. Sure. And what it can do. But, uh, you know, anybody can change a tire and you can learn to change tire (laughs) at any time. But the experience of how to talk in public, how to talk to people and, uh, you know, you being a psychiatrist where you're at, maybe that shaped a little bit of you knew how to talk and sure. are well-spoken. Yeah. Whereas I am not well-spoken at all. I stumble on my words. I slur. I threw things out there. <laughs> well, this is a, this is, this is a, we're, we're whiskey in here. Whis- I mean. We are whiskey in. We are whiskey in. <laughs> but, you know, here, that's funny hearing you say that because I, I was telling my wife uh, how excited I was that you were going to come on the podcast. And she said, well, that's really cool. I mean, you want to have Josh on the podcast? And I said, well, I mean, you know, I, I've always liked connecting with him. I've always thought it was really just fun. I've always thought, oh, I want to hear more about him. But the other day when we were standing out there, we were kind of talking about this. Mm -hmm. I realized I was like, gosh, you have so many interesting thoughts on culture today and being a man and manhood and so many different experiences. And you're articulate about them. And I think that this is one thing that I, I, I love when I get to talk to men. It's not every man, but it's actually way more than we think that that actually there is just a a world inside of us waiting to be discovered. And I, I don't think we take the time with each other to have these conversations. I mean, how cool is this that we've been talking, you know, for a little over an hour? We never would have done this, right? What a privilege to get to sit down and just go, oh, let's let's explore ideas together. Let's mm-hmm. hear histories together. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the gifts of podcasts. I wish it was a gift that transcended podcasts, that, that you could do this. It's pretty difficult to do in real life. A gift that transcends the podcast. So here's my thing. Without the mic in front of us and without the computer rolling, you don't think you and I would have hung out on the couch and had a couple glasses of whiskey and just talked about <laughs> crap? Maybe. Maybe. But I think, uh, well, yes, I do. Uh, and I think... I think that's true because I think there were people who would do that. (laughs) Absolutely. But I also think it's more difficult in society. For instance, I have so many more people now who are like, hey, let's uh, let's hang out and, uh, I don't know, do the podcast. I'm like, dude, you you fucking weren't going to come over to my house before, you (laughs) jackass. And And you weren't one of them. I asked you to come (laughs) over. But now I have this platform and it's like. Oh, I fought you forever for that. I know. Uh I want you on. But, I mean, this this is interesting. I do find this as kind of a phenomenon, like. I get to shut off my phone for this period of time. I'm not checking my texts. I'm not thinking about tomorrow's work. Mm-hmm. Like we're totally in the present moment. Yeah. This is actually one of the reasons why I think people actually go to counseling. I think people go to counseling so they can hear themselves think. Cause I don't think we take time to actually say out our thoughts or, or even sit with our thoughts culturally. A lot of, a lot of people don't write anymore. No, we don't journal. I, I journal all the time. Do you really? I write everything out. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Where did you learn that? When did you learn that? Um, I've done it since just before college, so high school. I used to have really, really bad recording nightmares, oh. and part of the thing that I tried to do was start waking up with the nightmare, and I would just write it out. And a lot of that became storytelling. Yeah. Like, actually, like, oh, one day I'm going to write a novel. Well, that turned into one thing after another, and now I just write everything down, and I find that... As I write things down, it lets me, one, remember it a lot more, and two, it just kind of keeps everything on paper 
yeah. so I don't ramble on about random stuff all the time. <laughs> but uh, you've just described the the very nature of this podcast to right. ramble on about random stuff. That's uh, that's the best kind of pod. I mean, <laughs> come on. I mean, some people have grown up with the the family that they would stay the night as teenagers and talk until 6 a.m. until you see the sun come up and go, oh, crap, maybe we should get some sleep before mom yes. and dad wake up. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have that family, <laughs> you know, and that's that's what this is. It's it's not a it's not the podcast that I'm here no. for. It's for the direct. That's right. This is my neighbor. Yeah. I know my neighbor now better than I knew him yesterday yeah. and vice versa. And that's that's pretty amazing. So. You know, especially now, like my parents knew everybody in the cul-de-sac that we grew up for 20, 30 years. Oh, yeah. And now you don't have that. People move into a house. They may not even talk to their neighbors. And if they do, it's like you said, you're calling the cops to have them turn the music (laughs) down. Instead of walking over and go, hey, I've been your neighbor for X amount of time. Right. Please be nice and turn that crap down. Nobody's giving cookies either because there could be razor blades in there. Yeah, we don't do that. (laughs) No, 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 no. The syringe. Yeah. I'm not going to talk to strangers anymore at all. (laughs) Unless they got puppies. That's a whole nother. Yeah. They got a puppy. I'm good. What's uh, What breed, if you could get a, 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 an AKC registered choice breed of your kind, dog, what kind would you get? I wouldn't. Okay. I know that's that's a weird. No. I, I, um, I'm a mutt kind of guy. You like I the like, mongrel. I like the mongrels. Um, when you breed an animal uh, that way, they've all got the same tendencies, the yeah. same this, the oh, same yeah. that. And uh, I would rather have the dog that's just kind of. A little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's one thing we actually, with Jacks specifically, Blue Healer, labeled as an Australian cattle dog, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, Red Healer, European, things that I've never heard Maybe of. some lab. Everybody's always, oh, some. what is he? What is he? I'm yeah. like, I don't know. Blue Healer, Red Healer, Australian cattle, he's this, he's that. I don't care. He's Such an amazing dog. dog. Yeah. That's what he is. He's an amazing dog. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's, it, it's weird to come across some of those people that are like, well, my dog's purebred. German Shepherd. I'm like, well, good for you. I know exactly what's in your dog, <laughs> and I know you. how he's going to act. I know how much you paid for that yeah, dog. Yeah, right. Well, okay. You know, and when you let's go back to hunting. You yeah. know, I've got an ex-brother-in-law that hunts all the time, and uh, he's he's got dogs specified for his hunting sure. for waterfowl. Yeah. That makes sense. I yeah. don't have that. I've got a family. I got three kids. I just need a dog that enjoys being loved. Yeah, companion. Yeah, and he was uh, you know, he was displaced by Hurricane Harvey. And sent to California, where two weeks later the fires hit in California. All right. And then he was sent up here, and then we pulled him off that. And I really, honestly, I think he's just thankful to have a place to hang out. Such a sweet guy, loved. too. So he's been pretty amazing, ridiculously amazing. We uh, Tonight we went, as I said, to the celebration dinner, and I hadn't seen some of these family members. I hadn't seen my brother-in-law in like five months. and So we were catching up, and mm-hmm. he says, hey, uh, any new pets? Because here's the thing with me, and, and the longer we know each other, you'll know this. Like, I go through dogs quite a bit. Really? This is a thing. This is okay. a thing with me. In fact, our dog right now, Hobbs, mm-hmm. has been with us for almost eight years. And this is the longest I have ever in my life owned a dog. But I have owned many dogs since even owning Hobbs. Really? So we had we had the old English uh, the old English bulldog that, okay. that we you know we had him for like what two like six weeks somewhere. In no, there. wait, ten days. We had him for ten days, and then we had to give him back to the breeder because mm-hmm. it was a horrible calamity. Yeah, he it didn't almost work well with bit the my child. Right. So then before that we had a we had a Great Dane. We had uh, we had a Labradoodle. We had a Golden Doodle. Wow. 
I didn't know you had all these different dogs. Yeah, I, I and I could tell you many more stories. We've had an English Springer <laughs> Spaniel. We've had all these different ones that we've gotten rid of for like these Seinfeld like reasons. You okay. know, like it's and I think my wife and I both have kind of like a farm mentality to dogs. Like, yeah, it's a dog. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And so, you know, you sell it to a nicer family, you mm-hmm. give it to a better home. I'm great with that. It's not like we're putting these dogs down. We've had some tragedy with some dogs. We've literally lost three of them. Calamitous accidents. Very sad. Mm-hmm. But I have in my mind a, a new breed of dog. What are you thinking? I, uh, oh. so, so first of all, there's a whole plan around it. Okay. The plan is this. I am going to become a backyard breeder. A backyard breeder. I am going to become. Okay, you're going to have to define what a backyard breeder is. I'm going to become a breeder of dogs. I'm going to have a very small artisan craft breeding (laughs) business out of my backyard. This is my whole strategy. Okay. And so I have picked a dog that costs, now this is almost $3,500 for a puppy, and they throw litters of 10 puppies each. Wow. That's $35,000, my friend. That is. I know. I You're know. doing it for the money. I am. Of course. Plus, they're cute, and and there is no competition in the Portland market. Really? Neapolitan Mastiffs. A Neapolitan Mastiff? That's a big It's a 150-pound dog. dog. That is a big dog. Not very active. They're a close-quarter guardian, so they were bred in Italy to actually stand as the last line of defense in a household or in big farm estates, mm-hmm. and they would stand there so they don't wander, they don't roam, unlike my Scottish Terrier Hobbs, who's like the, Whatever. the wily bachelor <laughs> of the neighborhood. And uh, But but yeah, they'll, they'll stay very close to you. They're, they're, they're very like territorial in the sense that they love who they love, and mm-hmm. they're suspicious of everyone else. Uh, that makes sense. But it's a it's a money maker. Hmm. So this this is my big this is this is my my road forward. This is my way out. I like it. Yeah. There you go. Business yeah. partner. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> Tell you what, you put in on the limo business, and I'll put in on the puppy mill business. Do I feel I, like. Do I consider you a puppy mill though? I would be a puppy. Well, it would be a small time. A small puppy, puppy mill. mill. A very small. Again, an artisan single malt puppy mill. That's really artisan, how I want to. Artisan. I like that. I like how we dress that up. Single batch. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what. You know, cocaine dealers and stuff. Oh, like interesting. Artisan cocaine. Yeah, uh-huh. You know, I add just the a next flavor. Wave. Of, oh, you get that pepper in there? Just a hint. Yeah, just a little He's kind of known for that pepper blend. <laughs> I feel like guys always have a business scheme. Every like, one of them. I, I've never Absolutely. met a guy who doesn't have like a business in his mind. No, you need to make the guy that pulls the trigger on the business. Though, I know. That's who you need to have it. your friend. Oh, it's that's so what true. I, I have. I Again, I write everything down. I've got four mm. business ideas right now that are sitting and just... They stare at me face every day. Give me it's your just, best one. Oh, well, best. wait, that you're willing to give away to the millions. Well, if, no, there's nothing hiding. I'm not inventing okay. anything new. Um, so, of course, I live on call 24-7, so it's hard to adjust and figure out what I can do on the side to make extra cash. Um, so boat and RV storage because I have oh. a 27-foot boat with a 30-foot yeah. trailer, and I'm paying somebody $75 to park it in their empty lot Jeez. with nothing. Well, I look at everything in terms of if I'm already paying this guy, I might as well make the business myself, buy the property and do it myself. Yeah. And so that led into, okay, well, if I 
buy five acres and turn it into a boat of our an RV. Once I get people on there, then I can start limo business because then I can build a area where I can hold my limo. Oh, I can yeah. book that whenever I want. I don't have to book at any specific time. So now I've got five acres with cars, <laughs> RVs, boats that never go anywhere unless somebody yeah. wants to get it out. And then I've got my limo business on the side when I can book it whenever I want. So yeah. eventually everything should turn into about $3,000 profit every single month. Wow. And that's including being able to rotate and actually put back into the business. So <laughs> I but love it. I'll sit on that for another four no, or five years. No, what's the name? Do you have a name picked? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, absolutely not. See, I always go there first. Like, the names? got a name first. Sometimes you come up with some pretty classic stuff. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> but, uh, you know, being a, being a veteran, I think one of the things when I came home is I had my parents pick me up. Um, but when I first came home, so I, I jumped, I went from Iraq to Germany, Germany to Iceland. And then from Iceland, I shot over to the East coast. And I remember that shower was the first thing. It was like a four hour shower. I don't think I got out until my fingers, I couldn't feel the fingertips. Um, and then I shot home. And once I got home, the first thing they tell me is you can't go home. Yeah, what are you talking about? And they held me for a week. Wow. I had to, I had to reprocess all my paperwork and get everything done. And so I didn't even get to see my family stateside for another week. Then when I shot home, finally I get off the plane and, uh, you know, it was, it was my parents in their 1994 Ford Explorer. And so if I'm owning a limo business, I think one of the things that I want to do, uh, out of the courtesy of my own is drive the family to go meet them as they get off the plane. Absolutely. Yeah. Military. As they come back or forth from being employed. So, and you put that in a business plan and nobody uh, wants to approve it because you don't make any money doing it. So here I am with my own cash trying to figure it all out. So I was really close last week to pull the trigger. Are you serious? I had my line on a limo and everything. And then uh, the guy sold it out from underneath me. He had a $56,000 limo and he was selling it for 29 grand. I have, I had the money sitting. And uh, by the time I got home to figure everything out, I called him. And he goes, yeah, sorry, it just sold. Somebody came up from San Antonio. Oh. He goes, maybe I should have sold it for more. I go, you should have absolutely sold it for more. How much did you sell it for? He goes, well, I can't tell you that. I go, was it under 30? He goes, yeah. I go, yep, you should have held out because I would have paid you 30000 So do you that see, uh, Do you see the movie hurt. Logan the, with the, the Wolverine? Yes, movie? I have. Yeah, with the, he was the, a limo I think driver. it was a Chrysler, yeah. He was driving that limo for quite a while. That could be you. That could be me. <laughs> I, give me the claws. I'll do that. God, if I even remotely looked like him when I was that age, I'd be oh, happy. Oh, yeah. Right? Seriously. Oh, don't dream about them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm about to. I I uh, I have had so much fun just hanging out with you and having you on here. I'll come back anytime. Yeah. Just let me know. I will, because it's, uh, it's apparently a great way to get to know people. <laughs> yeah, no, it works out great. We'll just put this on everybody. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Cool, man. So um, any last words or last thoughts you want to send out to the uh, the boys at home? Oh no! Just perspective. Just keep everything in perspective. That's everything what life's in about. Perspective. If I had to, thing. if I have to kill it down to anything, it's gonna be what I tattoo to my body. And it's perp- it's all about perspective. I thought you were tattooing pro bros. No, 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 no. God. That was that was a dare, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna set that one aside. <laughs> all right, everyone. Well, thanks for listening. This is Josh and Rainer Wild signing out. Check it out.